Welcome to the Line Break Podcast. My name is Chris Corlew, and with me, as always, is my friend and co-host, Bob Sikora. Hi, Chris. Hey, Bob. And Happy- listener. <laughs> and, and listeners. Hi to the listeners, too. Welcome. We can't see you, but we assume a few of you are there. <laughs> a few of you engaging in this uh, conversation between the two of us that you don't get to speak up uh, as part of. <laughs> Every every month when I go to upload, I have no, I don't, I'm too stupid to know how to keep track of our stats or whatever. But every month when I go to SoundCloud to upload the new episode for the month, it says you have like at least seven or ten plays in the last week. So uh-huh. four weeks after we released last last episode, right? Is that are people like stumbling across us or I don't know if <laughs> if, if you're new, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how are you, Bob? It's Friday where we are. I'm sorry, what was that? I said, how are you? It's Friday where we are. It is? Is it not Friday, another place? I mean, I guess. Well, we release on a Tuesday. <laughs> uh, this is a good point. Uh, it is Friday here. I'm really glad it's Friday. The semester's winding down. Um, I'm at the, the like quiet part before grading gets really intense again. Um, so I'm okay. I'm a little tired this afternoon. Sure. You know? uh, I can use a nap. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Is there ca- caffeine in that tea, or there is not caffeine in this tea, unfortunately. Oh man, what flavor are we working with there? Uh, lemon, hibiscus. Uh, it is. Uh, it's there's orange, hun- honey, uh, honey. I don't. <laughs> the details matter, Bob. This is a poetry podcast. <laughs> yeah, the word that was going to come out of my mouth though was honey blood, and I'm like, that can't be it. <laughs> that that is a good name for a bee-based my... horror novel, Honey Blood. <laughs> Or a tea that is made with carcasses of bees in the tea bag. I don't know if that would there taste you go. good. That's really disgusting. Thank yeah, you for making me like a like a meaty tea. Yeah, no, oh, we don't. No. Gross. <laughs> wow, this might be our worst opening yet. <laughs> poetry is visceral, Bob. Let's uh, speaking of poetry. <laughs> how about a poem that isn't particularly gross in any way? <laughs> Wow. What do you got for us this week? Oh, wow. We're going to abandon the, the opening before the opening even happened. You know, I'm, uh, I, I feel like I've been in this uh, like back to the, the roots kind of mood lately um, okay. with poetry. Um, my reading has slowed down in recent months, and like there's been a little bit more fiction, nonfiction kind of going on. Um, cause I was just looking back through like what poetry collections have I read recently? And I'm like, Oh, there are fewer of them than I thought. Um, and I just realized we hadn't talked any Bishop on here. Um, never have. And that feels like a shortcoming who I, I like enough to have read a few times in class, but never done a, a whole collection, but I like her. Uh, are you, a, are you a big Bishop fan? I wouldn't say a big bishop fan, but I, you know, in grad school I studied under Lloyd Schwartz, who um, is a, a a bishop scholar, um, okay. and uh, I, he, I don't know if he's the editor or he at least wrote the introduction for one of the collected bishops. You know, like he and like he knew her, oh, and well. was like at least friendly. I think he would say he was friends with her. Um, yeah, so I that influence hangs over. Yeah. Um, I'm also remembering, we didn't get this last time, but I've been meaning to plug, I have been listening on the way to the work, to work the Close Readings podcast with Cameron Javadizada that is the much more highbrow version of what we do. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he's a scholar, and he's been inviting other scholars, some who are also poets, some who are not, to do these close readings of poems. And they're mostly choosing kind of older stuff. Not like old, old stuff, but, you know, earlier 20th century stuff or mid-20th century. And so I think that's been on my mind, too, is like, oh, I want to read something, like, with some gusto. Okay, um, sure. After listening to some, like, really incredible, nerdy, deep, close readings. Not that I'm about to do that because um, I... I'm not that kind of scholar, I think. Because um, we're us. Do, do yeah. I drag you down to the, to the mud? Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> Old Corlew without his MFA. That's not what they teach you in the MFA. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, I, I did drop out of an MA program. So. Right, right. You were there, and you were like, "No, we're not about to do this." Um, but I would, I would recommend for both you and other listeners to check it out. Called Close Reading again. Um, if you're like, "Wow, Bob and Chris's podcast is a little bit not rigorous enough," for me. <laughs> I really enjoy it though. It's like being in class. I love it. Anywho, nice. I'm always. I'm, I've, I've learned. I, I think I've learned that what I really want from podcasts is a feeling like I'm in a classroom. Exactly. That's for me when it clicked and it made sense to me was I was like, oh, you yeah. know, yeah, like this can um, and now we're just talking on the nature of podcasts. But uh, yeah, I'll be, I get, get receive some more hate here. Like the idea of a comedy podcast, I do not understand at all. But also, I don't like fun. So well, there's that. Being a poet. <laughs> Anywho, I think this poem is fun. Uh, among other things. I agree with um, you. I actually know this poem this week. Right. So this is Elizabeth Bishop's Sestina, which unsurprisingly is a Sestina. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about that for listeners who might not know as much about poetic traditional forms. Received forms is the, the phrase that I keep hearing people use that I really like. Okay. Um, let's read this poem. Sestina. September rain falls on the house... In the failing light, the old grandmother sits in the kitchen with a child beside the little marvel stove, reading the jokes from the almanac, laughing and talking to hide her tears. She thinks that her equinautical tears and the rain that beats on the roof of the house were both foretold by the almanac, but only known to a grandmother. The iron kettle sings on the stove, She cuts some bread and says to the child, it's time for tea now. But the child is watching the tea kettle's small, hard tears dance like mad on the hot black stove, the way the rain must dance on the house. Tidying up, the old grandmother hangs up the clever almanac on its string. Bird-like, the almanac hovers half open above the child, hovers above the old grandmother and her teacup full of dark brown tears. She shivers and says she thinks the house feels chilly and puts more wood in the stove. It was to be, says the marble stove. I know what I know, says the almanac. With crayons, the child draws a rigid house and a winding pathway. Then the child puts puts in a man with buttons like tears and shows it proudly to the grandmother. But secretly, while the grandmother busies herself about the stove, the little moons fall down like tears from between the pages of the almanac into the flower bed the child has carefully placed in the front of the house. Time to plant tears, says the almanac. The grandmother sings to the marvelous stove, and the child draws another inscrutable house. Yeah, man. Sestinas are so hypnotic. Yeah, that's the word. Absolutely. I love it. I I was actually thinking, when I texted you the other night, I was saying I wrote a Sestina in college. I I think I wrote a Pantoum instead of a Sestina. Okay. Okay. Um, But this was given to me as an example of the form, and I was like, I'll I'll try this one day. Right. uh, I do not remember the exact uh, specification, specifics of the form. Do you, uh, you're a teacher. (laughs) <laughs> I'm a teacher and it's like hilarious. I mean, this actually is one where in my, so we do talk about this in my creative writing class. I think I give them two examples and like we try, we try and like figure out what the form is together before I give them a definition. Um, I'm trying to remember if this is one of the ones I use. The other one actually going back to uh, Lloyd Schwartz, professor who I love so dearly. Um, and I finally emailed recently um, if I can remember, I'm looking it up. The name of his his Sestina is called Six Words. Um, okay. And he uses the words yes, no, maybe, sometimes, always, never. And those are the only words in the poem. Like every line is just one word. Oh, so that's that's how the form works. <laughs> it's a really construct, it's a really helpful way to kind of think about the form. So you have a poem with I want to say 39 lines, if I have this correctly. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, you've got six six six-line stanzas, and then a tercet at the end. That's three lines. That gets you up to 39 lines, if I did my math right. You did. And uh, the final line, or the final word in each line is, like, the thing that makes the form move. 
Um, so if you can imagine coding each of those lines with a number, one, two, three, four, five, six, and then each stanza down, there's this like spiraling um, movement and rearranging of when you need to use that final word as the final word again in another line. If you are a listener and you're like, what the hell is he talking about? There's a really great like spiral image version of this on the Sestina Wikipedia page um, <laughs> for you to check out. And again, this goes back to what you're saying about hypnotizing. Like if you picture that like spiral cartoon version of this is how you hypnotize someone, that is very much what's happening in the form. You know, the easiest way yeah. to say it is the final line of the first stanza here is tears. And in the second stanza that comes up to the beginning. Um, yeah. And the, the word and it that has was to be the, the final word, right? Of the line, is that is that part yeah, of it? Or, it yeah, it does have to be the final yeah. word of the line. Yeah, that's so correct. If you're looking at this Lloyd Schwartz poem on poets.org, like I am right now, you can just imagine taking all those words and then writing a line behind it. Is basically right. how you would do it, but only the word shifts in this like stanza jumping shift that we're talking about. Um, right, you can, you can write other lines, obviously, but if you're you you can hear in Elizabeth Bishop's version, you can write other words besides. Right, right. Uh, the whole, the whole right. line doesn't have to shift. Just the last right. word. Yeah, yeah. and I, I could hear myself as I was saying it. I was probably mixing up the word word and line several times there. Um, oh, sure. So I'm sure it's confusing. I was um, following you. It made sense okay. to me as you are saying it, but that doesn't mean anything. I'm not very smart. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is also, too, it's true. It's like how I think it's a funny one to kind of explain to people because it doesn't quite fit, I think, with some of the other things that we think of as being these traditional or received forms. Yeah, there's no rhyme scheme or there's no, like, right, it's not divisible no... by two. A lot of, yeah. these, a lot of forms <laughs> are divisible by two. There's no meter issue. Um, yeah, there's not. Yeah, I can't think of another form where the repetition is word-based. I think pantoons is the only other yeah, one. Yeah, as that's, I'm saying that's that. That's lines instead of words. Right. Mm-hmm. As I'm saying that, I'm disagreeing with myself. There are, <laughs> there are but, yeah, there's something about repetition of words and also order that just feels distinctly unique to this. Um, and that feels like trying to write one feels so different from trying to write. Um... An American sonnet. Definitely. <laughs> uh, there's another form that's like also involving repetition and I'm totally blanking on it right now. It's it's a uh, prospect to write one of these poems. Uh, not necessarily a daunting one, but but it's a right. Um, it's more of one of those. It's definitely one of those times where you feel the the workmanlike nature of poetry, the craft like nature yes. of poetry, where you're you're, oh. you're kind of putting stuff together rather than like I don't know if you have that romantic notion of a poet like sitting at their notebook and just like the words are free flowing and you know, et cetera, right. et cetera. It's, it's not that it's like, it's brick and mortar making a system. Right. <laughs> right. A fucking villanelle is what I was villanelle. thinking. Of. I should have thought of it. What I was trying to say is the villanelle feels related um, because of repetition. But I know like, you know, from, from having tried to craft both of them, it's such a different muscle. I right? remember, I think the, it, the assignment was like Pantoum, Sistina or villanelle. Mm-hmm. I'm probably going to remember like six other forms as the podcast unfolds, but like the yeah. assignment was Sestina, Villanelle, or Pantoum. And I just remember Villanelle being like, I'm not touching that. I don't want <laughs> that, to, that doesn't sound fun. <laughs> um. Um, but yeah, I think what's, what's so weird about a Sestina, exactly like you said with the, the six words, the Lloyd Schwartz poem, if you like the most obvious way to start it is to like write a six line poem and then choose those words at the end of the line, at the end of each line, and then arrange them for the next five stanzas, and then like write into that. Yeah. Um, which, which yeah, is a again, fun it's, constraint. It is. It's it's super fun, and it just feels challenging in a way that's very different to a lot of other kind of formal constraints. I know for myself, and I think you do see it in this poem. That and who knows if Bishop wrote that way. She was obviously much more, <laughs> much, right. much more skilled, brilliant, everything, etc. Than the, either the two of us, um, probably combined. Um, but <laughs> it feels easier to it, like. It feels like it lends itself to like a little bit more narrative e, um, because you're trying to like meet 
the word at the end of the line. Um, it feels it feels harder to remember to do the poet stuff that you know how to do because sure. you're just like trying to make you know make some sense where you meet the word there, right? And obviously she does it really well, but there is a way. Even this poem, it feels very direct, and to me that might come out of the form. Maybe not. We'll get to it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but that's enough about the form. You know, I love talking about form. Yeah, that's a little bit of the why. But did you have any uh, any else for anything else for why this poem specifically, this one in particular? I wasn't imagining um, you sitting in the back with a. Uh... A bunch of Sestinas at the ready. I guess you talked about Bishop already, but anyway, yeah. Why this? Book? Right, right. You know, yeah. I just, I one, I just adore it. Um, one of the one of those poems where I remember like where I was the first time I heard it. Sure. Um, you know, and, and yeah, uh, Lloyd Lloyd would say, or I believe he did say something kind of like, "This is the Sestina par excellence. This is like the one yeah. to to this this is the one like that she named it just Sestina." Because it is like just like this embodiment of the form so well. Right. She, um, she, so she named like, it just Sistina and got away yeah, with it. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's not, nothing further today or deeper today than just, yeah, I adore this poem and I, yeah. I'd, love, and, and I'd you, love to talk about it whenever I can. Yeah, you talked about the form, you talked about Bishop. That's a good why. What's the, let's go deeper then. What's the move? In some ways, getting to this being this kind of ultimate Sistina. Um, so, in some ways, this does feel like a natural part of the form but again just like she executes it perfectly here where one of the things you are forced to do by this form because you're using these six words so many times is you're forced to like play with their meaning and like put them in like slightly different contexts yeah and i think she does it here in a way that's like it's surreal and dreamlike and it like twists slowly but by the fourth stanza i want to say maybe even the third yeah really the third is where it starts to happen i think the second line there um the tea kettle small hard tears you know i mean that's personification it's not like the most radical poet move but like that's the moment where everything in the scene kind of comes to life um for me in a really exciting way the whole kitchen Um, there does Right. And, and it, you know, if you just read those first two stanzas, I didn't necessarily think that was going to happen. For me, that was such a surprise. Yeah, because it, it, you're almost in the first two stanzas, like, is this a still life almost? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, and it's part of why it's so exciting that the, the things do come to life is you're in such a mundane moment. Um, and her word choice, you know, to have almanac be one of these words you're committing to repeat over and over again is nuts i was gonna say that when you were talking about as you were talking about um you're forced to play with the meaning of words she didn't use a lot of um like homonyms or homophones whichever one it is like these are words with double meanings these aren't words that are like these aren't words that very that are very easy to like move around in context we have child tears stove house grandmother and almanac um (laughs) Those those are those are pretty specific words. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so yeah, it's um it's cool, and like the throwing in the little marble stove is like a brand name for the stove. Right. It's, it's a smart play, you know. But I, I don't want to sidetrack the 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 aliveness of the poem because I think that is a huge thing after those first two stanzas. Right. Um, and I'm trying to think exactly how to pinpoint how she does this. There's this kind of like you're saying for some poets, the morphing is in with like the double meaning of the word, or you can use a homonym, but something like then the child puts them puts in a man with buttons like tears, you know? And so tears, which have been truly like tears or at least liquid the whole time, all of a sudden are completely not anything yeah. tear. Like it just the, the figure of this paper doll, I think it is looking like a tear or yeah, the, 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 draw, the shape the, of the, the drawings on it. It right looks like, looks yeah, like a I tear. Can picture one of my kids like he has a dollhouse toy with like yeah like like these little like crocheted dolls i can i don't know if any of them have tear shaped buttons but i can picture it yeah right and then in the next stanza it's little moons fall down like tears from between the pages of the almanac and, and we're starting to get into this like figurative place at that point to me which is really exciting um if i just read that stanza again second to, or the second to last one but secretly, while the grandmother busies herself about the stove, the little moons fall down like tears from between the pages of the almanac. And that's like literally talk, that's like talking about 
the pages like drawn in the almanac or the moons in the almanac are like falling out of it. This, this figurative moment. And they're falling into the flower bed the child has carefully placed in front of the house. Um, I love that word place there. I don't, I don't think I would normally get excited about that, but like placed here literally just means like she drew a flower bed there. Um, right. So it's just an incredible image of a moon that is not at all a real moon. It's the moon that's in the almanac falling out of the almanac into this other imaginary plane. Yeah, it's like that that Escher painting of the drawing the hands where it's like a real hand, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. There's, there's like a, you know, as, as it falls between the page of the almanac and into the flower bed that the child is drawing, but the mm-hmm. child has placed instead of drawing, which you're right, it's a great word for like the intentionality of a child's drawing. Um, yeah, yeah. Which, uh, yeah, it's, it's so... Um, yeah, it's 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 all the words are working in this poem. It rules. It's it so rules. good. <laughs> um, I love that moment you just said there. The intentionality of, you know, something a child does in a drawing, um, and I, I, you probably think of this more often. I, I wouldn't have thought of this, but that is so, so precise and dead on. Of when I, you have a child and they're doing some sort of artwork, how everything is either completely haphazard and wild or like this is the exact thing you know it's like such a specific carefully done thing yeah i've uh, noticed it with my kid where he like um he starts like you know doing stuff he's not like necessarily playing with something but he's like playing pretend in his mind yeah and he's moving around the house with like a clear mission in mind but like he's not doing anything with anything tangible or whatever right and like just start noticing that's like oh your your brain is spinning in there um, right right and um yeah she captures that kind of really nicely with the uh, For sure. placing the flower bed and all the For stuff sure. that that is happening around this poem. There's, there's so much movement for a scene that I picture in like a room. That's not more than like six by six, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. It's a small room. It's a small moment. And there's so much kind of movement happening um, in a scene that really is just like a grandmother with the grandchild with the grandchild. And like, yeah, like they're not leaving the room. They're not going anywhere. Um, you know, it could be a really quick moment, but it has so much life in it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When was the last time you cracked an almanac? Oh, God. No idea. Yeah, me neither. Absolutely no idea. Yeah, I'm uh, trying to remember, like, what they're for, you know? I was just going to say the same <laughs> like, thing. Like, I think, like, half census stuff and half, like, information for farmers, like, climate right. patterns and things like that. Right, so it right, makes right. sense that there'd be, like, moons drawn in there and... Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And the stuff like yeah, it's it's and, and I'm I'm looking at the almanac personified as like it's got jokes. Then it's like um, where does it say it's bird like fourth stanza? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the first stanza, the child is reading jokes from the almanac. In the second stanza, there's rain uh, beating on the roof of the house as foretold by the almanac. Uh, down by the third stanza, the almanac's clever. In the fourth stanza. Yeah. Um, on its string, bird-like, the almanac hovers half open above the child. And that's just an, a, a book sitting on a table above where a child's head is, you know. But that's, like, right. such a – just such a great phrase, you know. Absolutely. Like, and like you're saying with the personification or the movement, like, bird-like, if a bird is still, you're still – you're, you're thinking that bird's going to move soon, you know. Yeah, yeah. And if you skip right down, that next stanza uh, is when is when the – the things in the room start talking. It was to be, says the marble stove. I know what I know, says the almanac. Love that almanac moment, because that is what the almanac That is what it's say. for. That's exactly <laughs> what it would say. <laughs> that is, if there's, a, if there's an almanac in Beauty and the Beast, that is what it would say. <laughs> um, but I mean, all of what you're pointing to, and I, I think I will, I, will, I will make the move to take us out of the poem, or I mean... I'm going to go deeper in the poem to take us out of the poem is it's such an incredible, one of those things that it's funny that I admire so much is like when a poem is so good that all I want to do is talk about what it's doing and like, not for a second, really talk about like the content or what it means or how how it's moving me, you know, you know, like we've had so much to say quote unquote about the poem, but it is like this, like really like quiet, sad scene, you know, or I mean, if if not necessarily sad, at least, there's a darkness hanging over this that feels really important too. There are there are a ton of tears in here. It's, the, right. the last stanza starts with "time to plant tears," but which yeah. is such a good line. Ugh, ugh, time to plant tears. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's it is it is like I don't get a darkness from this poem, but there is like there's definitely a sadness like hanging over it. And like now that yeah. now that you say it, maybe there is a darkness hanging over this poem. It is raining pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah, because well, there's there's something about that ending. If we just go entirely there, time to plant tears, says the almanac. So it, it's you know, yeah, like the aliveness of the poem is there. It's moved into it's almost cartoonish when I think of it that way. But those last two lines to me are really striking. The grandmother sings to the marvelous stove, which, you know, seems to move away from that idea of sadness. Um, But you know she's, like, just been crying and hiding tears. Right. And then the final line, and the child draws another inscrutable house. The word inscrutable is incredible Yeah, that's doing some heavy lifting there. Right. And I think, like, what I have to assume is that like this another inscrutable house you know the child keeps drawing is implying that there's there's something wrong with the house that they are in there's something you can scrutinize about their family life or whatever's going on there yeah right and that you know in some ways the child is oblivious to it but also like in what the child draws or desires or whatever is kind of this representation of whatever the grandmother might be mourning I'm sure. not reaching too much. No, I don't think you are. That's that's an interesting point that I hadn't just hadn't read, spent enough time with the poem to think of. Yeah. Um, I was also thinking about like sometimes kids just get fixated on stuff and like obsessed mm. with like certain things. And <laughs> the the non-charitable reading is the grandmother just annoyed, like stop drawing so many fucking houses. <laughs> <laughs> but but is it like is there is there some sort of like previous trauma leading to a fixation of drawing houses or something like that. Mm, right, right, right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Because, because yeah, inscrutable is a choice to put there as the exactly. second to last word in this very word-focused form of poetry. Right, right. And I mean, that that to me gets to something so important about Bishop is um, that real dedication to like the right word, the word, you know, like yeah. choosing that exact right word mattered, I think to her so much. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is that your beyond the page, the, uh, the, the, what, what the poem's doing and, and right words and things like that. Or in in theory, I think mostly I'm just, uh, I, and I, I'm pretty sure I feel like I've said this for like three episodes in a row, but you know, I'm just <laughs> coming back to poems. I love to be like, how can this ground me in, uh, you know, what I, what I would like to do, what I'm trying to do. Sure. Um, because I feel just, I just feel like as a writer, I've been in such a funk where I, I certainly still have these, you know, these poems that I, I'm proud of, I'm happy I wrote, but a lot of them I go like, what's going on here? I don't, I don't feel in tune with this anymore. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. And like what little writing I have been doing, I don't know, kind of just like chipping it away at the desire to do something new and exciting, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah. sometimes it takes going back to something like this. For sure. And th- there's something too, like thinking about where like, I don't know if you get this. Um, I certainly do having, you know, not published very much. Um, I, I get uh, rushed as uh, like rushing myself as a writer. Like I like right. when I think of a project, I, I kind of want it to be done. I enjoy the act of writing a lot yeah. more, especially yeah. a lot more than I used to. I enjoy sitting down and spending the time with the projects, but I'm like, I've got the idea in my head and I want it to be out in the world kind of thing. Mm. I want it to be like, I want it to be, I want, I want to see it myself yeah. and I want it to like be seen and stuff like that. And um, that gets me to like writing quickly a lot, which is, 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 I don't think a bad thing, but then like, the editing and stuff, you, you really got to take slow down and take your time with. Right. Absolutely. I don't know if that applies to how you, how you approach your process at all, but like with something, I mean, what the heck is my process? these days? (laughs) (laughs) I got distracted as you were talking. And the thing that, that, that it reminded me of um, was just, is you, you you, you briefly brought up submissions because I'm having my creative writing students um, submit to like an undergraduate journal um, because our we have we do have a campus literary magazine, but it's one of those things where it's like if they submit right now, they won't even be looked at till next December. They won't be published till next May, so it feels oh, silly, you know? Yeah, right. Um, so I was like trying to find an undergraduate journal for them, and I thought it had submittable, so I was gonna like show them what submittable is, and like opened up mine, and I was like, here are the 300 rejections. I've had. <laughs> Oh was, man! Um, hey, at least you sent out three hundred. I, you know, I mean, that's 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 more many courage years, than I have. 
many years work. Um, and it is one of those things, actually, when I do look at it, I go like, man, you know, if you were submitting at the pace you used to, you know, like that's, that's how the 20 or whatever that are there got caught. Yeah. 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 But, uh, yeah, it was really funny to be like, you know, if you were submitting to the Campus Literary Journal, I would expect all or most of you to be published. But right. now that you're submitting to this national thing, I want you to prepare for rejection. Right. <laughs> I just want you to get the experience. Well, it's not a bad learning experience. And maybe be no, like, hey, sure. you know, like, if you, if you want to talk about it, come to my office hours or something. Right. Like, I could right. use that some words. Like, yeah, talk about how it felt. Talk about what's I, – I, I, could, I could have used at some point, like, send out a story or a poem it gets rejected now talk about where you think what parts of it could have gotten the rejection note from this mm, you know yeah that's something yeah. i have been beating myself up with for so long right. like well what part of this is bad because i think it's good and that's not that's not what rejection means if you if you, if you get right. rejected it doesn't mean it's bad but like that's right. what my brain says yeah, yeah. Oof. Oof. all right We're i want to move to your poem now. let's get to my i want to move to your poem yeah sounds good so yeah, I did bring a poem this week. Um, I don't this this wouldn't be this wouldn't fall into received forms, but I think I'm gonna end up talking a little bit about, if not forms, like what we're doing with this whole poetry thing with these mm, with with this one. Right. Yeah, I'll get I'll get to it and then, then we'll get into it. Um, Sounds good. This is from Matthias Svalina's book, The Wine Dark Sea, in which every poem is called The Wine Dark Sea. Um, and I've seen Matthias read like three times and I'm always, always, always quaking in my boots when I have to pronounce his name in real life. So Matthias <laughs> Spalina, I believe is how you say it. Matthias, very nice guy, fascinating poet, runs the, um, dream delivery service. If you've seen right, that on right. Twitter. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's him. Yeah. Uh, great poet. Love this book. Uh, here's, here's this one. The wine dark sea. I want what the date wants. From its box, printed in lip. The concerto cast a mourning beneath bridges where ropes dangle. I cannot stand inside myself. What emerged when I opened my mouth was a thanking tomb. So we tremble. Do we tremble? We tremble. An incredibly Chris Corley poem. <laughs> It rips for sure. This is so good. This is so good. Um, I appreciate this poem falling under the category of Chris Gore. This this that feels like a compliment. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Poem rips. <laughs> I'm familiar with Matthias's work. I'm mad because I feel like this is a book that just like pops up everywhere, and I still have never read it. I don't. I. I I'm trying to think where I even like see it. Um, and it might just be that, you know, that weird phenomenon where like, once you recognize it, you, you see it every, once you know it exists, you see it everywhere. But like, that's yeah. been going on for years. Well, have you read um, Homer? Have you, you know, you get the, yes, I do. I am aware. Yeah, I do. The familiar. one dark sea thing just always like, that just like right. snaps in my brain every time I see it. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I, and I get, well, maybe I don't get it cause I've read the book. I get the, at least the instinct to latch onto that phrase. It's so good. It's such wine, a good phrase. Wine dark sea is just unbelievable homer has a uh, uh calls the right after he talks about the wine dark sea he calls uh says red fingered dawn or rose fingered dawn a lot mm, and the title yeah. one of my the, the first tracks on one of my albums is blue fingered dawn so it's mm. like i'm not going to directly rip off homer but yeah the, the impulse to rip off homer is is, is so good um <laughs> and i think it was after this book came out actually that i wrote that song and i was like nice right Matthias took the wine dark sea but that's okay tell us uh why this poem um, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to bring something to this podcast that was even more surreal than stuff we've brought into mm-hmm. this podcast before. I feel like we do, we don't do a lot of surrealist stuff, but a, a lot of um, my early experience and a lot of my early, what I fell in love with, with contemporary poetry was surrealist work like this. Mm-hmm. And I sort of fell fell out of love with this style of poetry for a while, and I, I wanted to bring it to us because I'm getting more into it again and didn't know if it would be very Bobcore and just wanted to kind of talk about this type of <laughs> type of shit with you, I guess. Right, right. Um, no, I love it. And so I kind of started reading the book. Um, this is my second time reading the book, and the, the my first time through had a kind of 
tough time with it. And I think it was more me than it was the book, but right. was like, all right, I'm really into this and I'm just going to, I'm going to find one of these and send it to pop to, to, to do on the next episode. Hell yeah. So yeah, this was the one that stuck out. Um, mm. And I wanted to, I wanted to talk about, talk about weird shit, I guess. <laughs> um, I think part of what you speak to there in terms of my tastes and like the possible discrepancies between, like obviously there's a lot of things that overlap that we both adore. Yeah. But I, I remember this conversation and I've probably mentioned it on here before in grad school that felt really important to me where someone was trying to tell me that they wanted my poems to be weirder mm-hmm. and to embrace that. And I was really irked by the instinct to like be weird for weird sake. And I think you should be. Right. Right. Um, and I think there's a way to read something like this where you're kind of just excited about a perceived sense of like, this is just weird. Um, and what makes me like something like this is that I can, I can grasp on to enough of the possible weirdness and I can be grounded in this enough um, to also kind of like be moved to be excited by the language to want to engage with it. And I think there is, I have encountered work before where to me, it just feels like, yeah, it's weird. Okay. I'm not, I, have, I don't feel the need to dig. Yeah. There's a lot of that, that. There's a lot of that kind of stuff on my shelf that I kind of keep around just to be like, okay, this is a reminder that, you know, it can get weirder or whatever, but then a lot of stuff sure. that I just like, this isn't for me. And I, even if I like this poet, I don't like this book right. or I don't like this. Right. You know, um, and I kind of don't, I try not, I don't, I don't consider myself a surrealist and I don't consider, I maybe sure. write surrealist stuff or, or am influenced by surrealism, but I don't consider myself a surrealist and I wouldn't consider anything in my project to be remotely related to like the actual movement of surrealism or like a full commitment to surrealism yeah. because, because yeah. of that, like because of that weirdness for weirdness sake impulse and stuff like that. And, yeah. um, there's something about reading the Wine Dark Sea again, this this whole book that actually does feel really intentional um, mm-hmm. on Matthias's part. It feels like really, I, I hate when surrealism is described as dreamlike, but it feels like he like actually nailed how to like write dreams kind of thing. I mean, as so as someone who's been like a, a far away admirer, um, you know, because he posts some of the dream stuff from time to time. It is one of those things where you can just tell like he's gotten so prolific with that. Um, and has like nailed down, like won that approach and technique in a way that I agree with you is very believable. And I'm, I'm right there with you where so many things that like are supposed to feel like a dream do not feel like a dream to me, Mm -hmm. but well, one, I, I know you can get it delivered. I I would love if he was like actually in town to, to be a subscriber. (laughs) For those who don't know, he like rides his bike, he gets up every morning and literally like delivers dreams for a month. If you're in the town he's in, if I understand it all correctly. I think that's um, right. Yeah. I believe he does do like some mail programs sometimes too. Um, but it's such a, it's such a cool premise and you know, I'm sure maybe they don't all hit as hard as the ones that he posts, but the ones he posts, it's the same thing where I'm like, this is weird. This feels like a dream. And also it, it doesn't feel like disconnected from the world and the things that kind of move me and excite me and interest me. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I don't, that's my thing. I don't know how he does that. Yeah, I guess maybe that's a segue to, to the move. Um, yeah, bring it. Bring me, I, bring me into the poem. The the move is, uh, God, just fucking shoot me in the face for being a parody of myself. The move is, so we tremble, do we tremble, we tremble. <laughs> well, it has to be. It has to be. I love it. Um because I think there is there's no we in the poem before that. Mm, yeah. And that's what yeah. it is for me. Mm-hmm. Um there's a lot of there there are objects outside of the outside of the, the speaker of the poem, but it's all the speaker. There's there are objects, right. there's there's the date, there's mm-hmm. the, the, the box from which the date comes, there's the concerto, there are the bridges and the ropes, uh there's a moment of introspection and I cannot stand inside myself. Then there's what emerged when I opened my mouth. That's that's kind of the speaker actually engaging with the world after just describing it in the first two stanzas. And then there's a we, mm-hmm. and that's how the poem ends. And I think that's such a cool, such a cool move. Yeah, yeah. 
So uh, can I can I challenge you to walk me through the whole thing? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, so and a very for... high school English teacher, like, please. Here's what I think please. we're doing. Okay. Um, we're. I, I'm imagining an apartment with the window open. Uh, oh. We're, we're eating dates from the box. Um, there's a concerto. It's not playing from the apartment that we're in, that the speaker's mm. in. Um, there's a concerto playing. You can hear it from. It's either beyond the bridge or just before the bridge, but it's echoing in the viaduct underneath the bridge. Um, that's right. how the, that's how the speaker's hearing the concerto. Um, I cannot stand inside myself. I, I call that a moment of introspection. I'm, sure. I'm, I'm thinking of that as like, you know, a, 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 an insecurity or a, or a self frustration or whatever. Um, right. There is. I'm imagining the speaker alone because when you open your mouth and like, I don't know, you've lived alone for a while or you in, in the past, yeah. you've lived alone before I've lived alone before. And yeah. also had jobs where I've gone like whole shifts, not talking to anybody. And then afterwards, like talking is weird. Right. And that's the, the, what, what emerged when I opened my mouth was a thanking tomb. Like mm. you're just, you're not talking quite right, but then there is something in the world that is, that is off-putting. There's something in the world making everyone tremble, um, <laughs> wondering if they're trembling and then and then asserting that they're trembling. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, maybe I'm biased because I live in a city and I'm I'm picturing this in a in a city. Right. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm picturing it and looking out out from my apartment window, like down the street or something like that. Yeah. Uh, That's so funny to me that you can piece together this whole little scene because I was reading it almost as. You know, almost just like separate parts. I might be a sometimes egocentric reader of poetry. <laughs> I might, I might picture myself as a speaker sometimes, right? Unconsciously. Um, but there's just like I, I'm, I'm so amazed how I can be like fascinated and desiring of more information with these just like perplexing moments that I know are not going to resolve themselves. Just to start from the top, I want what the date wants from its box printed in lip. It took me a read or two to be like, okay, I feel confident we're talking about edible date here. <laughs> um, you know? Right. That, that's, um, that was a, that was the second time reading that I came up with. That is a, that's an edible date. Yes. <laughs> right. And I, I, as someone who doesn't regularly eat dates, I was like, wait, do dates come in boxes? Um, they do. I, My wife eats a lot of dates. And figs, okay. So, but the more figs, important... figs, but the same thing. Sure. In the same right. bag. I mean, same bag. Yeah. Yeah. But the more important thing is this, like, what does the date want? What is print? What is so the date desires something and the speaker desires the same thing and they want it printed in their lip. Yeah, I got nothing. Um, (laughs) um, I would at least reach towards something about language. Um, I I mean, just so you know, whenever we we think about mouths. Sure. um, Yeah. Maybe something about. What I what I desire to say, for some reason the word certainty is coming to mind. I don't know why I assume a date would be certain of anything. But <laughs> that comes to mind. Um, the next stanza, I can definitely follow you there with the idea of the the music being outside. The concerto cast a morning cast a morning is wild wild good. Yeah, because. The word cast to me there implies like, I don't know, like the way like a shadow is cast over something. I'm picturing sure. like light or, you know, darkness and light, but that's, you know, it's coming from the phenomenon of music. Right. I'm um, picturing a, fi- a fishing cast. Mm, okay. Like when yeah, the yeah. sun comes up, it's just like cast, right. cast the morning out, in the, out right. into the world. And, um, and yeah. And so somehow but the music of the sun, is... It's, a mu- it's music, whatever music yeah. it is. The music is doing that beneath bridges, which is like I can picture beneath yeah. bridges. I've... I live in a city with an elevated train system, so right, you know. right. What are these dangling ropes? They're ominous as hell. They are ominous because when you picture, I'm the rope bridges I'm picturing are the kind in like um, mm. you see in like like Florida and North Carolina where you're like going out into like like uh, like a leaving the mainland and onto an island. My uncle lives on an island in Georgia. Um, I was like, you, you have, you know, I have no idea what you're talking about, right? <laughs> my, my uncle lives up the uh, in Georgia, but it's an it's an island where he yeah. lives. There's a bunch of in like where my wife's uh, family in South Carolina is. Like you go, you go over like a bunch of like 
okay bridges onto yeah. off mainland onto like islands or inlets or whatever you right know, like the little peninsulas that you know you're getting to yeah you know. um but those those are like suspension ropes that are like on top of the bridge dangling ropes are not not good um <laughs> Yes. Yes. Important distinction. So I'm pick. I can picture rope bridges, but not not the dangling part, and not right. the, not the beneath part. Which yeah. right, yeah. For me, these these dangling ropes, I, I I'm assuming are yeah are not part of the physical structure of the bridge. They're just something was hanged off the bridge, or I don't. Yeah. I don't something know. has fallen no. into disrepair. I'm getting disrepair right. at least. Okay. Okay. And what I love is that the next stanza. I cannot stand inside myself, which as kind of abstract and opaque as that is, is somehow one of the most like understandable parts. Yeah. I can pretty clearly follow along with that thought, even though, you know, there's not, there's not an image. There's not a, the normal things I look for to ground me in some poetry are not there, but I, I feel pretty comfortable with that, especially considering what's all around it. Well, because it's almost I cannot stand myself, which is an emotion I yeah. feel a lot, um, and, <laughs> and, and and especially the inside of myself. Yeah, there we go. Right, right. Um, but yeah, but it's um, not quite any of that either. It's not like absolutely. it's not I cannot stand myself. It's not that. It's you know twisted a little bit. It's like and I do think yeah I think it's it's asking for you to like have that you know, like when those it's part of why that's so good as a uh, a couplet right there. Is and it's a short couplet. Is that you can read all those words at once, and it, I think it's almost impossible not to see. I can't stand myself. Yeah, even if it, you understand, it's not bad. Right, it's there though. Because <laughs> yeah. it's I cannot stand line break inside myself. Yeah, and that's the whole stanza. Yeah, right. Um, and I promise we will get to trembling. But what emerged when I opened my mouth was a thanking tomb. Yeah, what a phrase. What a phrase. Thanking tomb again feels really heavy to me. I mean, obviously death is there. Tomb is such um, a heavy word. Tomb implies yeah. ornateness, implies right. like, like a um implies status, um mm-hmm. implies oldness. Yeah, yeah. Um and I don't know what a thanking tomb quite could be. Yeah, I don't know either. But and why is that uh emerging when you open your mouth? Well, not, I mean, I could get into like cosmic horror here and talk about like the the, the yawning maw of the of the long dead masses that are, you know, coming for us or whatever. But I don't think that's what the poem is going for. Uh, Maybe no, it I is, agree. But, you know, I um, agree. And I, that's the part for me where I was able to have the most connection is that this experience of the thinking tomb or the emerging mouth or whatever's coming out or emerging from your mouth. When I get the so we tremble right after that, I kind of assume there is a connection that whatever's happening there is part of why we tremble. The so, I guess, is probably doing that for me. Yeah, this, the so is doing that, cause. I think. But right. whatever, whatever's emerging, whatever a thinking tomb is, is making everyone tremble. Right. It's cause for all of us to tremble, whether it's just the thinking tomb is so terrifying from the one person or whether this is like a shared experience. But it's not just, yeah, this cause, so we tremble. It's also like... We have to ask. It's like, wait, do we tremble? Um, it's so good. Yeah. Just, and, and, you know, the certainty of we tremble is like doubled by the fact that you ask the question and then by the fact that you have the pause of the line break. Yeah. So we tremble, line break, do we tremble, stanza break, we tremble. Yeah. It's yeah. great. So good. It's so good. This is... You know, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, this gets into, I, I know this excites both of us, but you know how in uh, Bishop Sestina, the work feels on the page. You can see all of the work. I was going to drag it, it back to that. Yeah. Yeah. And this one, it's, it's, this is, it's a pretty sparse poem. So I think kind of the way that you see the work and the craft here is more the like, how much is gone. Yeah. I you think know? one thing that people who try to write this way in ways that, at least I don't particularly care for. Um, I'm thinking with like Matthias or even like with like imitations of like Zachary Schomburg type surrealism is that you try to do too much. And mm-hmm. um, I know I, I do when I was trying to write this way, um, right. you, you try to like build an entire whole world in a poem, but like 
this one really benefits from the sparseness and yeah. it makes everything feel so much more intentional. Right. Right. Yeah. Oof. But Oof. yeah, much, much in the way of the uh, inscrutable house at the last land of Bishop. Bowen, like, <laughs> there's intentionality to all of this. Absolutely. Yeah. Ugh. Well, in this inscrutable house, we also want our poems to mean something beyond the page. So uh, what's going on there? Yeah, I got a couple of things. Um, so, so, yeah, first of all, like with this, um, with the uh, being intentional about words and um, the what we're all doing here, I do think with this poem and with a lot of poems in this book, you can sit here and do what we just did and like break it down and right. do whatever Jack Spicer says not to do about, <laughs> if you remember last month's episode. Um, and also if you just, if you just read these, you're kind of just like left with this, like just, if, if you just read them back to back to back, nothing about too much, you're still left with this like odd kind of unsettled feeling, but not in like a, Oh, I'm reading surrealist poetry. This is, isn't this weird, but like in this kind of like, just like there's, there's a touch of ominousness to the wine dark sea, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that automatically shoots over every poem. And then like the fact that every poem is called that like points to this ominous mass of, of sea, you know, um, <laughs> washing over the whole book. And, um, right. So then when I get back to my earlier thinking of like, you know, to put it in oversimplified terms, detached from reality style of writing, detached from reality style of poetry. Um, this very much withholding the promise of communication that we, that we've alluded to before. Yeah. Like the, what are we doing here? The, what are we doing here is just like, man, just like sit here and read this book and just like, let it, let it make you feel how you feel kind of thing. You know, I don't mm. know. I've, I've been getting into that a lot more lately with like, I have a book of poetry in front of me. A lot of people, said this book was good enough to be printed into a book and purchased and shipped to my house and like just sit there and think with it and like let it kind of like let it do its thing to your brain. Um, I've been reading (laughs) 30 books in 30 days for the month of April and like, you know, I like more than I like some more than I like others. And, and, and I, I, I feel inspired and ready to write after reading some more than others, but like each book I just, I feel like is like a, is a is a gift that has been given to me you know even if i bought it yeah. you know um, right and so like i was saying i soured on this kind of like soft surrealism for a long time and like i'm just uh, i'm maybe not trying to write this way anymore but all the way back in on it being a thing yeah. i like to read you know right um, right and it's just just so fun to sit there with these books and yeah and, and read them so i don't know and 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 yeah like they're intentional poems, so that and that's part of what makes it fun. I don't know. I'm rambling. I'm gonna stop myself. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, no, you're inspiring me. I and mean, we we talked about this off the show via text of, um, you know, one of the ways that I've been thinking about how my relationship to poetry at large has changed is the way that I feel way less connected with what is weird in poetry right now. Sure. Um, you know, uh, not that I ever was like that tight and connected with it. Right. Um, but it, yeah, it's just as I look through like what I've read lately or, or what I am reading, um, I just I think it's a thread of the experimental that I'm a little less connected to. Um, and I mean, I'm hoping I, I know this is a lot just like the school year kind of thing. I'm hoping that someday sure. I'm going to kick butt and find some stuff. Um, already put in a few library requests. Nice. Um, yeah. Nice. yeah. Um, but yeah, the long game of poetry, huh? Yeah. In and out, you know? Who knows what we're gonna be thinking a couple years from now? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> it's been it's uh, been you know, fifteen years, I think, since I started seriously reading contemporary poetry. I've gone through a lot of right. phases with it and Right. I, I like this phase I'm at now where I'm just like, it's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh the important the important place to land, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. Um we're hitting that hour mark, so you should probably ask me something about basketball. Yeah, we should talk about basketball. I'm trying to figure out the best way to uh, formulate this question, so I think I'll just give it give give you a, um, a an option. Okay. Um, can you think of a player whose game 
is like a cere- is is like a received form, or a player <laughs> whose game is like surrealist poetry. Um, not the player, not like oh Nick Young's a weirdo or whatever, you know, or Kyle right. Kuzma wears surreal clothes or whatever. Like someone whose game is a received form, or someone whose game is surrealist, and you can't say Chris Paul as a perfect example of formalist poetry. <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, what's surprising for me, actually, the first thing that comes to mind, um, as much as I, I, I would not call myself a hater on this front, but um, I feel like I've been surprisingly less enthusiastic about him. But um, like Jokic as a surrealist, I sure. think kind of makes sense. Yeah, um, that, was a, that where, was the first instinct for me, too. Yeah. Yeah, just that he's doing stuff where, well, and also in like that, that great way that I think we're both excited about the surreal is like it has a logic to it and there has a, a meaning and a, and even a form. Um, but that it's just one of those things where you're just like, excuse me, what did you just do? (laughs) (laughs) There's sometimes Uh, where he, he's, he's like dribbling and he seems to lose control of the ball. And then his like hand does some sort of wavy motion. If you're still looking at the Wikipedia page for Sestina's and you see like the, 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 the hypnotizing squirrel that's what his hand kind of does and he never touches it with his other hand and then the ball goes in the hoop <laughs> it's weird uh, um, maybe Hakeem too now when I'm thinking about it now Hakeem to me is um, uh, an example of like the good kind of formalism I sure. Feel like the okay. bad, okay. the bad kind of formalism in basketball to me. The uh, the 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 iambic pentameter, rhyming couplets of basketball is the Stockton and Malone pick and roll, um, <laughs> and and the the good kind of form, the the Gwendolyn Brooks rhyming poetry, is is Hakeem's post game. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> Because <laughs> he's he's so textbook down there, you know, yeah, with yeah. His, keeping his pivot foot and pump faking until he gets the right opening and right, you know, and and the 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 whole point of the dream shake was to get back to the basket without establishing a pivot foot, you know, right, like that, right, and is playing with formal constraints. You're right. The thing that comes to my mind with him though is just how like as you're watching, like I feel myself getting like psyched like I feel myself getting faked out when I'm watching. <laughs> like if yes. every move is so unexpected. You know? <laughs> I just got Pepsi in my nose when you said I feel myself getting faked out. <laughs> um I'm trying to think of someone who's got a formal game, like the best I'm coming up with that's close to what I want to say is just like, like the prettiness of Katie's game feels kind of like formal. Sure. Um, sure. You know, I mean, I, like when he gets up to shoot, it's just like so perfect. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, even though he's, he really, he's such an oddball, you know, in the history, like nobody else is like, him. no, <laughs> so. no, he is. Uh, yeah. He's a, he's a, he's a pantoum of a player for sure. Somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I was thinking of um, there's got to be something for like uh, guards who in today's game have to find creative ways to stay on the floor because they can't shoot. Mm. I'm thinking of like uh, um, Gary Payton II and Bruce Brown who are like guards who almost play like power forward for their teams because they're on the floor for their defense and they're cutting and they're like smart decisions with the ball, but like no one's guarding them past 18 feet, but like they figure out how to get buckets anyway. Um, right. Right. Uh, there's gotta be some, some formal, like some twist on formal poetry. That's an analogy for that type of player uh, for, for GP two and Bruce Brown, uh, an American sonnet. Maybe. I don't know. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, those those players they just feel like uh, they're they're slant rhymes, you know. They, they're slant rhymes. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Like they're they are making the rhyme happen, but they sure don't fit. Right. Like in the nineties, <laughs> Gary Payton the second would just be a point guard. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but no, he's a a guard who plays alongside Steph Clay and Jordan Poole sometimes. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> uh, oh my. Yeah. 
I think I think we're stretching our credibility, really. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyone listening at this point should just be like, I don't know if they should be talking about either poetry or basketball. <laughs> Somehow they failed at both things they set out to do. <laughs> um, yeah, tell me what your dad yeah. thinks of this episode for sure. <laughs> do both. <laughs> Well, that does it for us this month. This is National Poetry Month, by the way. <laughs> wow, our National Poetry Month episode. <sighs> oh, Came in like a wrecking ball. My goodness. <laughs> um, all right. That's that's our National Poetry Month episode. Our music is done by Brendan Johnson. Our art is done by A.M. Strickland. Back in May. <laughs> <laughs>